It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Okay, so before I weigh in on the Oscars, I know, I know, somebody's got to do it. I want to talk about this huge, at least on Twitter, you know, flap about Elon Musk being picked to host, to guest host Saturday Night Live. Like, why is this such a controversy? Elon Musk is a brilliant entrepreneur and businessman. He's also crazy. He also has no acting experience. But SNL has a long history of doing this. I mean, you look at some of these entertainment folks uh, tweeting online, Elon Musk is incapable of being funny. Uh, uh, I'd, I'd quite literally rather watch paint dry than watch Elon Musk on SNL. Okay, so don't watch. I, and maybe he won't be funny, but, you know, I mean, they write scripts for him and they try to get you, you know. Um, I mean, you look at the history here. Some of the most uh, highest rated episodes in the history of SNL. Peyton Manning, Charles Barkley, Betty White, John McCain, Sarah Palin. I mean, most of these people are not exactly professional comedians, so I don't understand why this is triggered. He himself tweeted about it saying, uh, let's see here. Um, I'm hosting SNL on May 8th. Let's find out just how live Saturday Live really is, along with a purple devil emoji. Uh, all right, then. Okay, so I tried to watch the Oscars. I lasted about an hour. It was bizarre. Now, I have to say to start that I'm not a huge fan of these long, endless, boring award shows. And, and look, everybody knew, everybody knows in advance this was going to be the lowest rated Oscars in history because of the pandemic that we've just gone through was going to affect the show. Also, it affected movie making last year. So a lot, a lot of movies uh, were made. Um, movies were not seen in theaters for obvious reasons. Most people didn't even know most of the movies that were winning or losing these honors. So it was always going to be a, a difficult challenge, shall we say. But I mean, let me just read you this New York Post review. Reviewed it like a movie. One star. The night was nearly nonstop drudgery, zero humor, and a format that tried even the most resolute of attention spans. This guy liked it even less than I did. Uh, this uh, event uh, sensibly meant to celebrate the movies. We rarely saw clips of any of the films. Rather, we were told saccharine trivia about the nominees. So-and-so used to work as a telemarketer. What's-his-name researched his role really super hard. Our eyes couldn't take this self-righteous snooze fest. The camera work is purposely shaky. The acceptance speeches were shot pretentiously off-center. And the cinematic frame rate robbed the uh, news event of electricity. Uh, <laughs> you know, among the things that really struck me was, because any show like this has to have some pacing. First of all, in the first hour, uh, big deal about the award for the best makeup, hair and makeup. Big deal about the award for best costume design. Now, I have absolutely no doubt that these things are absolutely crucial to making good movies. But does the average American really want to hear who did the best makeup? No offense to all the great makeup people in the film industry as well as the TV industry. I don't think so. Uh, it, 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 it was just this, this sort of self-congratulatory quality to it. There wasn't much humor. You know, it started out by saying the best video of the year was the one of Derek Chauvin uh, killing George Floyd. So the, pol the inevitable politics got in as well. The, the shooting, you know, Steven Soderbergh, brilliant film director, was put in charge of producing this, and he was trying to do something different, and I understand that that's a challenge, but it was shot in a sort of a gauzy, filmic way. Um, now, obviously, there's some debate about, like, everybody expected Nomadland uh, to win Best Picture, as it did. 
uh, Chloe Zhao, uh, first woman of color to win an Oscar for her role uh, as the uh, director, I guess. Um, but And then there was this great, they decided to do Best Picture early on and then to leave Best Actor almost until the end. Uh, and that turned out to be a bust because I guess the woke expectation was that the late Chadwick Boseman would get a posthumous award for his performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And instead it went to 83-year-old Anthony Hopkins in The Father. Now, I haven't seen The Father. I'm obviously familiar with Anthony Hopkins' work. So, you know, it didn't even generate the kind of controversy that the Oscars lives on. I mean, it did to some extent with some of these awards, but just thought the whole thing was kind of a bust. It was just weird. I mean, you didn't even have... You know, I'm opening up the envelope and the winner is. Instead, they would just announce it. Also, they, because there wasn't one host, it was constantly bouncing around to different presenters. And I didn't, I didn't even know who these people were. If you missed the tease, we're coming up, uh, you know, here's Don Cheadle. And sometimes you aren't sure uh, who is speaking. I guess Glenn Close uh, generates some controversy for uh, showing off her butt. Uh, I'll let you Google that one. Um, but it just, it just was disjointed and quirky. Uh, kind of like the whole pandemic year. All right, let's get to some serious business here, folks, with number one, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader. You know, I'll set this up by saying I happened to talk to uh, the House Minority Leader uh, when I was at Fox yesterday. Uh, we had an interesting conversation. Uh, he is convinced, or at least is telling reporters like me, uh, that he believes he'll be the House Speaker after the midterm elections. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, he was on with Chris Wallace, which, by the way, Fox News Sunday was celebrating its 25th anniversary. I talked about this on the air. Um, Chris Wallace, who had been doing the show from home, came in to the studio, talked to McCarthy and others. There was cake, very good cake. I ate a lot of the cake. I think I had a sugar high <laughs> during my show, uh, which I hope you got a chance to see. If you had missed Media Buzz, uh, we've, we've got all the segments online, uh, or almost all of them by this point. Um, so McCarthy, naturally, was asked about the January 6th riot at the Capitol. You know, after that, he had kind of called out Donald Trump, saying that Donald Trump uh, should have done more to shut it down. And there was this phone call, uh, widely reported, that Chris uh, asked the, the minority leader about, uh, in which, you know, while this was going on, Kevin reached him and said, you got to do something. And... Trump is reported to have said to Kevin McCarthy, uh, maybe these people care more about the election than you do. So Chris asked him point blank, is that what he said? And, and McCarthy wouldn't answer. He ducked it. Well, my conversations are my conversations, not going to discuss it, blah, blah, blah. But I did tell the president he needed to do something to stop this, and he did. Well, as Chris pointed out, uh, Trump did put out a video, but it was a couple hours later, and it was kind of weak. That was Chris Wallace's word, because it said, you know, uh, we love you to the protesters, but it would be good if you went home now. Didn't back off the charge of a uh, stolen election, you know, as the Capitol was being absolutely ransacked, as uh, five people were being killed. So obviously McCarthy was going to be asked about that, and he was kind of trying to, uh, to sidestep it uh, and got a lot of heat as a result. By coincidence, today, the New York Times has a long profile piece on Kevin McCarthy and his political prospects, which does describe um, the difficult position that Kevin McCarthy is in. 
Uh, for example, reading from the piece, uh, should McCarthy cut Trump loose, as many Republicans are urging? Should he keep trying to make it work with an ousted president who remains the most popular and motivating force inside the GOP? Well, as everybody knows, McCarthy chose the latter. He's been down to Mar-a-Lago. He's trying to be on, stay on good terms with uh, Trump. Uh, this, according to the New York Times, has earned him a reputation for being an alpha lapdog inside Trump's kennel of acolytes. Woof, you get the canine metaphors there? All right. Nine days after Trump left Washington, there was McCarthy going down to Mar-a-Lago trying to keep up the dialogue. And here's what McCarthy told the paper. He goes up and down with his anger. Um, he's mad at everybody one day. He's mad at me one day. So he's kind of saying, look, Trump's a volatile character. I'm trying to keep everybody inside the GOP tent. So look at it from Kevin McCarthy's point of view. You have a bit of a civil war inside your party. Uh, you're trying to hold the party together for the 2022 midterms. Uh, and so you want to keep on good terms with Donald Trump because he's, you know, Trump's going out trying to beat incumbents who either voted to impeach him or convict him or just crossed him at some point. And McCarthy wants to keep a big tent because he wants to take control of the House in 2022. Pressed on whether he regretted working to overturn President Biden's 2020 victory, McCarthy told the New York Times he did no such thing. We voted not to certify two states, referring to Arizona and Pennsylvania. And he delivered this rap about, well, you know, even if Arizona and Pennsylvania had flipped, um, Biden still would have been president because Donald Trump wouldn't have picked up enough votes. But that's kind of an odd argument because why would you? I mean, look, that was the precipitating event. It was that GOP challenge to the duly certified results in a bunch of states, and they chose those two states. That prompted, with urging from the former president, a whole lot of pro-Trump zealous supporters to come and ransack the Capitol to invade the people's house. And, you know, McCarthy, uh, McCarthy had been critical. And now he's trying to kind of put that in the rearview mirror. There's no question about that. Um, now, in my view, the reason that Kevin McCarthy has a very good chance of becoming the next House Speaker and, you know, obviously there's so many unknowns here. What will be President Biden's political standing uh, in November of 2022? Will the coronavirus be vanquished? Will the economy be on fire? Will people have a favorable view of the infrastructure bill, which presumably will pass in some form of the COVID-19 bill? Uh, will there be a whole other set of issues, including the issues at the border, which may make the administration unpopular? And you always have the question of turnout. Uh, and people who are angry tend to turn out more in a midterm election than they do in a presidential year, and therefore they're, they're, there's always a protest vote against the party that holds the White House. So Kevin McCarthy only needs to flip five seats. That's it, because the Republicans, as Trump was losing the presidency, um, did much better than anybody expected. And even Republican analysts were saying last fall. So, you know, you can go through the list Almost always, there are a couple of prominent exceptions. The, the party that controls the White House loses big time, loses 30 seats, 40 seats, 50 seats in some examples in the past couple of decades. So even if Kevin McCarthy's party performs well below uh, the historical record, he could still easily uh, have a House majority. And from talking to him, I got the impression not just that he expects to become speaker. You know, obviously, you never know what's going to happen in politics. The, the game is played on the field, not on paper. Um, he thinks that one of the reasons that Joe Biden is passing these $2 trillion bills, 
trying to pass them is that the Democrats and President Biden are well aware that they have a, a moment in time now with a relatively fragile majority, few seats in the House, basically one vote in the Senate, and that has to belong to Kamala Harris because of the 50-50 tie. And so this might be the only two-year window they have to get all this big stuff done, and especially, uh, you know, raise taxes on on wealthy Americans, raise taxes on uh, corporations. You know, if it's not done in the next two years, it might not be able to be done in a divided Congress in the second two years of Biden's term. So that's... um, Part of the scene setter here. Let's go on to number two. So as you know, and I talked about this on the air yesterday, there is, I think the effort to vaccinate a, a, a vast majority of the country has has stalled, has hit a wall. Now, the Biden people can say, look, three million people a day are still being vaccinated. That's great. That's far better than it was when we came in. That's great. Okay. But at the same time, last week, the rate of vaccinations dropped by 11%. And I saw a headline this morning saying it's now down by 20%. So what's happened is a lot of the people who really, really wanted to get vaccinated, whether they were in the most vulnerable groups like the elderly, uh, like people in frontline professions, healthcare workers, people with pre-existing conditions, have mostly been able to get the vaccination. And now it's been opened up to the general population. Anybody over the age of 16 can at least now attempt to get an appointment. In a lot of cities and counties, um, there are a lot of open appointments, and yet it's slowed down. Why? Because we're now reaching the group that doesn't really want to get it. And the New York Times is what I consider a pretty disturbing story, saying millions of Americans are not getting the second dose of COVID-19 vaccines that they need, and their ranks are growing. More than 5 million people, or about 8% of those who, who got the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine, have missed their second doses, according to the CDC. That's more than double the rate uh, among people who got inoculated in the first several weeks. And what they're telling people is, well, they're afraid of the side effects, uh, which, you know, it can be fairly, you can feel like you have a bad case of the flu for a couple of days and then you're fine. Others said that, you know, they felt one shot was enough. And look, the statistics show that one shot of either of those vaccines gives you about 80% protection. But you get the second dose, you're up to 95% by and large. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is back now uh, after that, what, roughly eight or nine day hiatus. But you can certainly understand people being more reluctant to get that because of the, you know, even though it's eight people out of seven million, it's gotten a lot of bad publicity. But the second dose thing troubles me. And the reason all of this, look, people get to make up their own minds. The reason all of this is frustrating is if, if we would go back to the, uh, the previous pace of vaccinations, we would probably reach that elusive 70, 75, maybe 80% of the country vaccinated. And at that point, the virus would start to wither because so many people would be protected or have already had it uh, that I think we would be pretty close to beating the virus. Instead, at the, precisely the wrong time, people are either becoming complacent or scared Every poll shows that it's more, far more Republicans or conservatives who are wary of this. It became a political issue, and that is a shame. Um, and now a lot of people are not getting the second doses. So that's where things stand now. And now is when the administration and local leaders, doctors, um, leaders of cities and counties and states have to find a way to reach the people who are reluctant. A lot of innovative ways to do it. 
not just advertising, you know, open up, you know, pop-up clinics, mobile clinics, go into the communities. Meanwhile, the Washington Post has a pretty troubling story. Uh, you remember before the J&J vaccine was sidelined, there was 15 million doses that were ruined because of problems at a Baltimore plant. And the problems were with a government contractor called Emergent Biosolutions. Well, the stock price of Emergent Biosolutions, not shockingly, has fallen really sharply since that disclosure was at the end of March, so it's roughly a month ago, that production problems had ruined the 15 million doses of J&J. And then AstraZeneca moved the production of its own vaccine out of that facility. So, but these developments came after emergence stock price tumbled on February 19th from about $125 a share to about $62 a share, more than 50%. So, get this. It turns out that the chief executive of Emergent Biosolutions, Robert Kramer, sold more than $10 million of his own stock in the company in January and early February, according to securities filings. The stock that he dumped for 10 mil would now be worth about $5.5 million. So the obvious question comes up. I'm not alleging anything here, but there is certainly questions to be raised about did he uh, make these sales just based on trying to, you know, get rid of some of his stock? Or was did he, ba- did he base this on his own knowledge of what might be coming, which would be insider trading? Again, I'm not alleging insider trading, but I think certainly it ought to be looked at, and the Washington Post is the first that I know to look at it. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. Uh, I want to go back to uh, the Derek Chauvin uh, verdict in the George Floyd case. We talked about this a lot on Media Buzz with a variety of guests. Because, uh, as reported by The Hill, uh, nearly half of all Republicans questioned in a new poll. new poll is a CBS News YouGov poll. Nearly half of all Republicans questioned say they believe that former Minneapolis officer Derek Chauvin was wrongly convicted of murdering George Floyd. 46% of those telling the CBS pollsters that they're Republicans said the jury reached the wrong verdict. Only 10% of Democrats said the same thing. Now, if you look at the overall numbers, 75% overall said the jury reached the uh, right verdict. 25% said it did not. Uh, The 25% of Americans who say they believe the jury reached the wrong verdict also strongly disagree with the ideas of Black Lives Matter. So obviously, these are Republicans. These are much more conservative people. But here's the thing. There was another poll, and maybe it's not directly comparable, right after the verdict was delivered, in which a much higher percentage of Republicans, maybe not a majority, but certainly more uh, than you know, 46% saying it was the wrong verdict, had confidence in the verdict. So what happened? Here's what I think. Here's my theory. And I, I see this, by the way, just to digress for a second, uh, most often in polls about presidential debates. So take, for example, the 2012 debate, the first debate between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. I mean, Obama clearly lost. Romney, he was rusty. He, he, he didn't, wasn't cogent. Romney had a really good debate. Every instant poll showed uh, that Romney beat President Obama by a lot. But within a few days of punditry of everybody saying on the news, Obama stunk, he was horrible, Obama could now, uh, Romney could now win this election. It swung even further because 
people said, oh, I saw the debate, but wow, everyone is really saying Obama sucked. It must be even worse than I thought, and that influenced their opinion. In this case, one of the things I've said over and over again, you had almost no conservatives going on TV, writing op-ed pieces and saying, you know what, Derek Chauvin was innocent. He's really getting railroaded here. He didn't kill George Floyd. You did have people talking about whether he was able to get a fair trial, pre-trial publicity, the way the judge constructed the trial, Maxine Waters. You have people talking about that. But almost nobody, because of the existence of the nine-and-a-half-minute video shot by 17-year-old Darnella Frazier, says, you know what, Derek Chauvin's a great guy. He's really being framed here. But they needed something to fight about. So what they thought about was... Um, police excessive force and racism at large uh, across the country. Was Chauvin just one bad apple? And is, are all police officers being unfairly accused of, being, of, of systemic racism? And I talked about this, and I think most police officers are honest, they're fair-minded, and they are brave. They risk their lives every single day to protect us. So I don't think they should be smeared. But in this case, and then you can debate individual other cases, like the one in Columbus, which I think the media rushed to judgment on. Um, you can debate those cases, but you really can't debate very much the substance of the challenge. So now you have Republicans, almost the majority, saying it was the wrong verdict, and it just tells you something about the way public opinion moves. Number four, uh, I'm sure you heard about the fact that Caitlyn Jenner, um, the one-time Olympic athlete, um, the transgender now candidate for governor of California, because there is going to be a recall election. Although I must say, the Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, while obviously he's not hugely popular, polls are showing that he has 55% uh, support in that recall election. So he could win the recall. But nevertheless, when I heard, you know, Caitlyn Jenner, remember the Kardashian clan, big celebrity, and I remember, you know, look, 2003, Arnold Schwarzenegger came. Uh, he had never held elective office. He was obviously a huge movie star. Uh, and he became governor of California and served two terms. I thought, well, this will be interesting. But what's happening is, and this is a very hostile piece uh, in the Huffington Post, um, Caitlyn Jenner is getting clobbered by the trans community and the LGBTV uh, community. So, for example... The group Equality California tweeting, Make no mistake, we can't wait to elect a trans governor of California, but Caitlyn Jenner spent years telling the LGBTQ plus community to trust Donald Trump. We saw how that turned out. Now she wants us to trust her. Hard pass. Um, now here also is uh, trans activist Charlotte Clymer. Caitlyn Jenner is a deeply unqualified hack who doesn't care about anybody but herself. Her views are terrible. She is a horrible candidate. Now even though she has taken steps to distance herself uh, from Donald Trump, uh, you know, if you can't, if you're getting um, dumped on by that community and you're running as a Republican in a very, very blue state, it's hard for me to see. I mean, she'll probably get a lot of coverage for obvious reasons. Hard for me to see how she has any shot at winning the governorship. All right, number five, I'm going to give you an extra story here today. Have you seen or heard about certain Republicans and others saying Joe Biden wants to cut your consumption of meat and you'll only be allowed to have four um, pounds of red meat a year. So this is complete fiction. It's complete BS. So how did this get started? Here, Republican freshman Congresswoman Lauren Bobbert 
why doesn't Joe Biden stay out of my kitchen? So this has gained a lot of traction about Biden's climate change proposals. Now, it turns out, Snopes did a fact check on this, and I've done my own fact checking. The Biden climate change proposal, and you can criticize it as being too radical, as being unrealistic, it's going to shut down the oil industry, it's going to shut down the gas industry, it's a lot of things you could say. It has absolutely nothing to say about meat or agriculture. The conservative Daily Mail came along and wrote a piece saying, you know what, here are some of the things that we think, or our experts think, Biden might have to do to reach the goal. It's nothing President Biden ever said. It's complete and total hogwash. And one of them was this business about, well, uh, in order to re- reach that 50% target of uh, cutting greenhouse grasses by the end of the decade, uh, Americans would have to, could have to consume only four pounds of red meat a year, 0.18 ounces per day. That equates to roughly one average-sized burger per month. Well, that gets a lot of headlines and retweets and clicks, right? But there's nothing to it. It's complete and total garbage. Biden's not asking anybody to curtail their burger consumption. There were other things, too. You might have to do this. You might have to do that. And yet that somehow, you know, through the magic of the Internet, got translated into Joe Biden doesn't want you to eat burgers. Um, And it's just amazing how quickly this stuff travels. I mean, it's just completely and totally fabricated. I mean, if you read a Daily Mail article, it's not a lie. It doesn't say that Biden said this, but it got translated, morphed, magically transformed into Biden cracking down on your ability to go eat a steak. Come on. Which sets me up very nicely for story number six. Long investigative piece in the Sunday New York Times by a reporter named Adam Krolik. And he starts off by saying, I wrote a nasty post about myself because he wanted to see how these things go viral. And he found out, what did he write about himself? He wrote that uh, Adam Krolik is a complete loser. We'll do anything for attention, anything. Adam Krolik, New York City. Okay. Well, it did hit a lot of sites. We soon discovered a secret hidden behind a smokescreen of fake companies and false identities. The people facilitating slander and the self-proclaimed good guys who help remove such slander are often one and the same. This is a great read. I mean, it just shows you, it's just a great bit of reporting. So these sites, I didn't know about this, are called badgirlreports.date, bustedcheaters.com, worsthomewreckers.com, that will pick up, you know, tweets, you know, just one person doesn't like you, says you're a bozo, you're a clown, you're a horrible human being, and these get picked up by these sites. Photos are badly cropped. Grammar and spelling are afterthoughts. They're clunky and text-heavy, as if they're intended to be read by machines, not humans. But do not underestimate their power. When someone attacks you on these so-called gripe sites, the results can be devastating. The unverified claims, again, it can just be anybody who is just trying to slander you on these obscure, ridiculous-looking sites. But search engines give them a veneer of credibility. Posts from cheaterboard.com appear in Google results alongside Facebook pages and LinkedIn profiles, or in my case, he says, articles in the New York Times. Within two hours, he said, Cheaterboard popped up, the Cheaterboard one about this guy, Adam Krolik, popped up on foulspeakers.com. Within a month, the original five posts had spawned 21 copies on 15 sites. What was the point of copying the post? A big clue, he says, and this is where comes the big reveal, are the ads that appeared next to them offering help removing reputation-tarnishing content. 
So he ends up on foulspeakers.com. I don't know. I guess it's got a lot of foul stuff, right? And there's an ad there on foul speakers for reputation management. And it's posted by, uh, it turns out that foul speakers is run by a guy named Cyrus Sullivan, who the reporter tracks down. This is a guy who's done a couple of stints in jail, according to the piece, among other things, convicted of sending death threats to a woman and of throwing uh, spicy Doritos Doritos in the face of police officers, uh, according to a court filing. He started foulspeakers.com in 2018. It bills itself as a foul speech search engine and web archive. So he trolls these sites. He finds out who's having horrible things said about them. He puts up these ads. And he talks to the reporter. Sullivan says copying content was a great way to lure people to his sites. He said he didn't feel bad about spreading unverified slander. He says, hey, teach children not to talk to strangers and teach them not to believe what they read on the Internet. Then there's another company that is called RepZ, R-E-P-Z-E. They all relate the same basic story, the customers of this RepZ. They hired the company to remove negative posts about them, which it quickly did. But then RepZ threatens you that unless you pay thousands of dollars right away, or thousands of dollars that you agreed to pay, the posts would reappear and multiply. And in some cases, that happened. So that's like an old-fashioned shakedown, right? I'm not accusing this particular company of anything, but you hire a company, you spend a lot of money. I mean, this is not like 50 bucks. You're talking about $2,000, $5,000 to get this, you know, because you want to get it out of the Google results. You don't want it to be one of the top five things written about you when people do a search on your name. If you don't pay up, then there's this threat that the bad stuff will come back. So... The reporter, again, tracks down through a circuitous route a guy named Vikram Parmer, who's in India. And he's the one behind this site. Now, sounded a little sketchy uh, because it turns out, according to the New York Times, Parmer ran sites that produced the slander and then ran sites that made money by getting rid of the slander. Now, in the interview, he's like, he's kind of uneasy. He said, well, you know, anyone can use anybody, anyone's email to register a site. Then he admitted doing some reputation management work. Then he asked that his name not be used in the article. Then he suggested other people in the industry who we should investigate instead of him. You're pretty much accurate, but you're targeting the wrong guy. I'm just a mediator. I'm one of the gentlemen. So that comes down to the bottom line. You have people in this business, him, I'm sure there are others. If you want to read this Times article, it's really worth a, a good read. They create sites that spread unverified slander, and then they ask people to hire them, and they do get hired to get rid of the slander. Talk about working both sides of the street. Wowza. Uh, and it just makes you show that the internet can be a very, very ugly place. And now, of course, I will ask you to go online and subscribe to our uh, podcast, um, which you can do on your Amazon device, Google Podcasts, Apple iTunes, Spotify, you name it, Amazon Music. Uh, also, hope you'll uh, check out some of the uh, Media Buzz segments. We had a really good show yesterday. Uh, we talked about the trial. We talked about um, Biden, the coverage of uh, Biden and uh, climate change. Uh, we talked about vaccinations and the efforts to get more people vaccinated. If you haven't, if you've gotten your vaccination, talk somebody else into it. It doesn't just help them. It helps the people you know, people they know, and it helps the whole country. We'll see you tomorrow with more Buzz.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.